So good morning. Um, when Michael found out he was going to be doing this funeral service, memorial service over on the wet side, he looked at Chris because Chris is our intern and he's trained to being or being trained to preach. And we found out that that Rob was preaching at children's camp this past week, and he had already asked Chris to preach at Terrace Heights. So we thought about Kevin because Kevin took the preaching 101 class with us, but he never actually finished the class, so he didn't actually have a sermon ready either. He flunked out, yeah. Um, and Chris and I had spoken to each other weeks ago about having a pocket sermon, which is just a, a standby sermon that you have in case Michael gets sick or something. But neither one of us had actually done anything about it. So when Michael finally settled on me to preach, he said, the only thing that I, I require is it has to be on prayer. So I looked up prayer and a couple of concordances and stuff and said, okay, Michael, I'm going to preach on Luke and started to read the passage again in different versions and Michael texted back and said, nope, I already got plans for Luke. Oh great, what am I going to do now? Well, I've heard that, that you can pray your way through the Psalms. I don't know if you guys have heard that or not. There's dozens of books out there, websites, blogs, on how the Psalms are wonderful to pray through. They really express absolutely every aspect of your walk with God. There are Prayers of confession, such as Psalm 51. It starts with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. There are psalms or prayers of praise. Psalm 151. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I praise your name forever and ever. There are psalms of prayers and healing, such as Psalm 30. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. There are psalms or prayers that ask for rescue from your enemies. Uh, Psalm 35, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. There are prayers or psalms of comfort. Most best known, uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Just a little sampling of the various topics that are covered in psalms. So I leafed through the psalms, looking at, you know, the, they have little headings on top. And I found one that had prayer in it. I thought, that's good. And it had forgiveness or forgiven or something about forgiveness. Prayer and forgiveness, perfect. So I told Michael Psalm 32. Um, how hard can it be because it's prayer and forgiveness. And that's part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's got to be right up Michael's alley. It'll, it'll satisfy all of his conditions. Um, the title was, um, Psalm 32, A Prayer of the Forgiven. This was actually, uh, do you guys know who Augustine was? He was one of the early church fathers way back when. Um, when he was on his deathbed, he actually had this psalm inscribed on his bedroom wall so that he could see it every day because it was his favorite psalm. So I figure if it was his favorite, it's got to be good. Um, let's look at that psalm real quick. If you turn to your Bible or your device, or you can hopefully do it on the screen, Psalm 32. Uh, Blessed are the forgiven. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I went into this psalm really expecting to find um, an expression of what I've always felt was, was forgiveness. And that is um, always a pretty harsh view of forgiveness. Um, always um, expecting to find scripture that says, Hi God, I'm a worm, I'm unworthy of your love, but please love me in spite of my faults. And I spent a lot of my early Christian life feeling that way. Um, and as I've grown, I've discovered that it's not really about being a worm. Because when God looks at me, he doesn't see a worm. When I look at myself, that's what I see. I compare myself to God and I fall so far short. But when God looks at me, he sees a beloved child. And so, as I read through this psalm, I was kind of surprised, very pleasantly surprised, to find that this is not where the psalm is coming from. This is not a psalm about a worm. There are scriptures in there that, that say, yes, you're a worm. Um, but it's not how God sees you. This psalm starts at a very different starting point. Um, let's look more closely at this passage, see what God says about sin and forgiveness, and a few other related topics. Significantly, David does not start with the guilt of being a sinner. Rather, he concentrates on the blessing of being a forgiven sinner. Thus we call it the prayer of the forgiven, not a prayer for forgiveness. Um, so, although I know that I'm often driven by the pangs of guilt associated with sin, in this case, um, David wants us to be driven to a stronger relationship with God through the many blessings resulting from forgiveness. Verses 1 and verse 2, or verses 1 and 2 start, Blessed is the one, or blessed is the man. Note what it doesn't start with. It doesn't say healthy is the one. It does not say happy is the one. It does not say wealthy is the one. It doesn't say contented is the one. It doesn't even say good looking is the one. It doesn't say popular is the one or respected is the one. Instead it says blessed. Why blessed? Um, now blessings can take the form of any one of those you can be blessed to be wealthy healthy or wise to be good looking in some cases popular in others in fact I suspect that most of us 
are blessed in more than one of those ways I just mentioned and a number of other ways as well. God's blessings are varied. But blessing, being blessed is also a lot more than any one of those characteristics or group of those characteristics. If you look in uh, the Google Dictionary, blessed is defined as made holy or consecrated. This is a deeper, richer relationship with God than just being happy or just being wealthy or just being good looking or any of those other conditions. Um, so blessed is the one, well blessed is the one what? What does it take to be blessed, to be in that very, very special relationship with God of being holy, set apart, or consecrated? Uh, the verses, the whole verses say, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no doubt, no deceit. Um, first we want to look at, this assumes that your sins have been forgiven, which is just a really blessing for me, there's the word blessing again, because I usually start from being a sinner. And David here starts from being a forgiven sinner. Um, John Calvin, probably the founder of Calvinism, that's kind of the thing that says that you don't have any part, it's all God, which is true. They, they, they teach all God. They teach that man has a part. Both are true because they're both in Scripture. Uh, but John Calvin himself um, wrote of this psalm that it speaks of the, the perfect happiness and the joy of man. For how can man ever be joyful if he's not forgiven? And so David starts from a point of joy. Now, why, does, why is he so joyful? Why, why does he write about um, being blessed or thankful? Well, let's think for a minute. Maybe he's thankful that he was forgiven for that sin with Bathsheba. You guys remember Bathsheba? Married woman, slept with her, got her pregnant, had her husband killed so that he could marry her. Um, big sin, little sin. Well, most of us would say pretty big sin. Well, maybe David is thankful that he's been forgiven for this big sin. Big sin, big forgiveness, right? Isn't that the way it works? Certainly we've heard testimony like that. Lower, or I was a, uh, let's see, how did I put this? Uh... Yeah, I was a child murdering, spouse abusing, drug distributor till Jesus touched my soul. We've all heard testimony like that. Big sin. Big forgiveness. And they make really powerful testimonies to listen to. I'm not a drug dealer. I don't abuse my wife much. You know, she may differ some days. Um, you know, uh, and, and I, I, as far as I know, I'm not a serial killer. Um, so... My testimony may not sound as powerful to us. But, well, so is that what David is talking about? Big sin, big forgiveness. Um, I said what I'm not, and that's good. I'm guilty of a lot of little sins, quote unquote. Um, everybody knows that murder is far worse of a sin than gossip. Adultery is far worse of a sin than gluttony. 
homosexuality is far worse of a sin than lying, especially those little white lies, like when you tell your spouse she looks good in that dress. Um, actually, in God's eyes, sin is sin. And gluttony, lying, uh, greed, gossip, in God's eyes, those are also big sins. So we put values on sins and we kind of rank them from the big ones down to the little ones. And so when somebody says, oh, I'm a spouse abusing drug dealer until Jesus touched my soul, we think that's really impressive. But to God it's just as impressive to say, Lord, I've been a gossip and I'm really screwed up and I gossip a lot. Or I've been a glutton. Because in God's eyes, those are equally big sins. So, it's possible that David was being thankful for being forgiven for what the world calls a big sin. But I don't see any sign of that in this text. Um, we see uh, three words in use. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Three words for sin. Um, why does he use these three words? Um, well, maybe he used them for literary reasons. Um, he wanted, it's, it's psalms or poems, right? For the most part. Maybe he just wanted it to sound good. Well, do we see any other circumstances of that? Well, okay, maybe in uh, Proverbs we see a number of passages that go like, there are three things the Lord detests, no four. Why didn't they just write, there are four things the Lord detests? Well, it's a literary device to catch your interest. You know, was this psalm remembered? Well, remember we read Romans chapter 4. The last two verses, Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, are direct quotes from this psalm. So this psalm was remembered hundreds of years later. It was still used maybe as a worship hymn, maybe as a, a psalm of instruction, we don't know, but we know it was remembered. So it is possible that David used three different words for sin just as a literary device to make it more memorable. It's also possible he used it as repetition in order to emphasize the point. Do we see that at all in the Bible? Well, the most common example we see is in the New Testament when they say verily, verily, or in modern translations, truly, truly. It is a way to say, hey guys, pay attention. This is really important. And it is possible that he used three different words just to emphasize the fact that God forgives our sins. But we look closely at the words and what, it, what do they actually mean? Um, word biblical commentary uh, defines transgression as acts reflecting rebellion against God. Sin is the most general term designating an offense or a turning away from the true path. And iniquity indicates distortion, criminality, or the absence of respect for the divine will. Now, why would David use three words that mean something slightly different? Do you guys know the Inuit tribe in Alaska? They have 50 words for snow. Because to them, snow is life. Snow is such a large part of their life. They describe every possible condition, type, variation of snow. 
They have the snow that comes down to sting the face, the snow that melts the next day, you know, 50 different words for snow, because um, they need to cover all the occurrences of snow, and they need to describe it accurately. I think David here uses these three words to show us that he's not being thankful for the forgiveness of a big sin. He's being thankful for the forgiveness of all of his sins. And I think this is where it really ties in with us. Because we look at our life, we look at our sin, and how do we feel about it? Well, David describes that. In verses 3 and 4, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is the way we're supposed to feel about our sin. Every time that you do something that displeases God, you should feel the weight of guilt. Now I hear you saying, Bill, I don't feel that way. I know that I've got sins in my life that really don't bother me. Um, I don't know where the reference is, but that's okay. Um, Martin? No. Uh, one of the commentaries spoke of um, the two kinds of error that cause us not to feel this way. Uh, the first kind of error is, uh, again, we rank our sins from large to small, and we go to God and we say, well, this sin is so slight and so small, God couldn't possibly care about it. We think that, that we are a better judge of what offends God than God is. Um, simply put, we're not. God is offended by all of our sins, whether we think they're big or small. Um, the second one is that... Uh, We're human, and humans are extremely good at rationalization. It's not really a sin. That one more brownie, that's not really gluttony. That uh, telling my spouse that she looks good in that dress, even though it's a lie, well, it's to protect their feelings. We're really good at rationalizing our sins, whether we look at them as small sins or large sins. You know, well, I abuse my spouse. Well, she's still lucky to have me. Or he's still lucky to have me, depending on which side's doing the abuse. We rationalize our sin. We become very comfortable in it, and it no longer bothers us. David was a man of God. And when he sinned against God, it bothered him. Did it always bother him right away? Well, you remember with Bathsheba, he had a son. And it didn't bother him at all until, uh, what was the, Nathan came. Nathan the prophet came and told him a story about a man with a, just one sheep. But once he was bothered, he was bothered a lot. And he went to God for forgiveness and he was forgiven. Um, I don't know whether this psalm takes place before or after his sin with Bathsheba. I do know this that David is celebrating 
forgiveness of sin. And we need to do that on a daily basis. We need to go before God, confess our sins, whether they're small or large, and then celebrate the fact that we are forgiven. Everywhere that God, that David talks about sin here, he talks about it in the past tense. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, not will be forgiven. Um, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Not they're going to waste away. David's sins, God had put them in the past. That didn't make him perfect, but it did make him forgiven. Um, why should it bother us that we sin? You guys remember the Family Circus cartoon, anybody? Um, he had two ghosts in his house. Their names were not me and I don't know. And he would say, well, who, who broke the lamp? Not me. And he'd have a little picture of this ghost running and said, not me. Who, who, who threw the ball through the window? I don't know. This other little ghost running around. Kids, even little kids, understand that sin, that lying, lying is a sin, is going to affect their relationship. We need to realize that unconfessed sin, not me, I don't know, are going to affect our relationship with Christ at the very deepest level. Okay. Uh, verses that five. Uh, what is the remedy for unconfessed sin? We've all got it in our life. What is the remedy? And David's not shy about telling us. He tells us in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. Again, past tense. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Same three words. Again, why? Because David did not only confess his big sins. He did not confess just the sins that he had committed today. He confessed all of his sins, all of the time. Um, well, that's great, Bill. What about sins that I can't remember committing? Because, you know, I commit sin all the time. Sometimes it's a week before I even think about it, and probably I don't even remember that I sinned last week. Well, does God forgive those? I think that David, again, He's using three different words to show us that God forgives all of our sins. In the, these verses he talks about transgressions are forgiven. Sin is covered. Iniquity is not counted. Just as sin, iniquity, and transgressions are used to indicate that, that God is forgiving all sins, he uses these three words to drive home that every single sin, including ones that you probably can't even remember, are forgiven by God. Is this important? Well, what do we know about God? We know that He cannot stomach sin. That when He looks at us, if we have sin in our life, He just doesn't want us in His presence. Thankfully, Jesus Christ died so that we could be forgiven of sin. That's why when I said, I'm just a worm, I'm not worthy, that's not what God sees when he looks at me. He sees 
a perfect beloved child, completely forgiven of sin, even the ones I don't remember. So can I share... Well, Isaiah 1.18 also says, uh, expresses it. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So when Christ looks at us, he does not see the sin in our lives. Um, so can I share the joy of the Lord that comes through forgiveness if my ledger book is not clean? Does God keep a ledger of every sin? Um, Thankfully, our salvation does not depend on our ledger book being clean. Um, our ledger, in effect, our ledger book is clean um, because we are forgiven by God. Martin Luther, in many ways the founder of the Protestant church, um, was known for his time at the confessional. He spent so much time at the confessional that it's supposedly his confessor, the priest, basically begged him and said, please, go out and do something worthy of the confession. Stop confessing to all this little stuff. And yet, Martin Luther continually confessed for hours in the confessional because even the little stuff bothered him. He realized that none of this is little to God. Sin is sin. Um... 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, David makes it clear in this psalm that forgiveness includes our sins, our transgressions, and our iniquities. That is, it includes all of our sins. All is forgiven. Verse 6 then goes on. It says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So who is godly? What does that mean? Do you have to be perfect to be godly? Um, I think if David meant, let everyone who is perfect pray to God when he may be found, he would have said, let everyone who is perfect. What he said was, let everyone who is godly. Dictionary.com defines godly as conforming to the laws and wishes of God, devout or pious or as coming from God or divine. What could be more godly than his beloved forgiven children created in his very image? True, we are flawed by the original sin of Adam, and we continue in Adam's tradition of sinning. Uh, but nevertheless, God looks at us as his forgiven children. As, I guess you could say in, in God's eyes, we are perfect. It's kind of a mix. We're still sinners. But we're forgiven sinners. I guess that's not really the same as perfect. It's just forgiven. So, again, David stresses time after time after time the joy of being forgiven. Um, prayer. Why in the world would David want us to go to prayer, to God in prayer? Well, what is this psalm about? It's about being forgiven. How does God forgive us? Or why does God forgive us? He forgives us when we confess our sins. How do we confess our sins? Prayer is direct communication with our Creator. There is no better way to confess your sins than directly to the man who created you, or the God who created you, rather. Um, that prayer could be a silent prayer that comes from your heart. 
It could be prayer during your dedicated time when you're in your room on your knees praying to God. It could be prayer in a public place with flowery phrases and lofty words, which are fine if they come from the heart, but a problem if they're not from the heart, if they're there for show, but that's probably a different sermon. Um, and sometimes a prayer is just an anguished scream, Father, forgive me. I suspect that, that in God's eyes, that last one, just a cry of the heart that says, Father, forgive me, is perhaps the most effective prayer there is. Prayer provides direct access to God. Um, in the Catholic Church, they use an intercessor or a priest. We believe we do not need an intercessor, that we can pray, speak directly to God. Uh, what about the phrase, at a time when you may be found? Is David saying that sometimes God can be found and sometimes he can't? I think what David is saying here is that if indeed your bones are wasting away, and your, your, how did he put it? Uh, God's hand is heavy upon you and your strength is dried up. I think that is when we tend to look for God. That when things are going well, we assume we can handle it on our, our own. And I think what David is saying here is that we need to go to God in prayer, especially when times are tough. When uh, we've lost control over our sin. Um, Why do we need to pray? The last part of 6 and 7. Uh, we need to pray because God protects his beloved and we need that protection. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here David reminds us that God is our fortress. Similar to Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, the stronghold, my stronghold. Right place a passage about protection in the middle of a psalm about being forgiven. Why did David even put this here? Well, I think it goes back to um, something I said earlier, something David said earlier, where he said, uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That is the way we're supposed to, to re react to sin in our life. Um, I've talked about why we don't do that. But let's assume for a minute that we did. That we actually felt the weight of God on our souls and on our conscience about our sin. We pray to God. We confess our sin. We're forgiven immediately. True? Okay. So what happens then? Well, in some cases, the desire for that sin goes away. When my grandfather first accepted the Lord, he said it was a miracle because he went to the bar every night to drink. And the day he accepted the Lord, he went to the bar and the beer just didn't taste good. And the Lord just took away that desire for drink. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we pray for forgiveness and we're forgiven and we still struggle with that sin. Sometimes God says, I'm not finished teaching you yet. 
You need to learn a little bit more. But sometimes he takes away the sin. Now what happens when he takes away that, that desire for sin? Well, let's think about warfare. Because we're in a war with Satan, right? In a war, you plan your attack, it's working great. And all of a sudden, your opponent, your enemy, changes his tactics and now your attack is no longer effective. What do you do? You don't go surrender. You come up with a new way to attack. Something that your, your opponent is not prepared to defend yet. And I think this is what happens when we properly confess our sin to the Lord and the Lord takes that desire away. Think about it. Satan has been very successful attacking us in that area for years. Maybe decades. And now all of a sudden, his attacks are not effective anymore. He is going to come back with a new attack. A new sin that maybe didn't bother you before. Or maybe an old sin coming back. And so David places this emphasis on our rock and our fortress, our protection. Um, he compares it to a flood where the floodwaters will not reach us. That threat we're being protected from. And he says we're a hiding place. So I think that this passage is here so that, that David can emphasize that when we're forgiven and Satan comes back with a fresh attack, we don't have to be too worried about it. Because God is our fortress and our protection. Um, David goes on and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is verse 8 and 9. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Well, first, some of the commentaries put this in, in the person of God saying, I will instruct you, but most of them think this is David. These are still David is saying, David the king will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Um, whether this is God or David doesn't really seem that important because the point is the same. What he is saying is, um, don't be like the horse or the mule that needs a bit to guide it. He's saying, uh, learn from my instruction, celebrate being forgiven. Which is better, celebration or sorrow? One would think celebration. Then why do we fight celebrating forgiveness so much? Well, part of it is that we're proud. We think we can handle sin on our own. We really don't need God to forgive us because we got it all under control. Okay. Again, don't be stubborn like the horse or the mule that has to be forced to do something. Instead, follow his instruction, ask forgiveness and be forgiven. And then celebrate that you were forgiven. Part of it is um, that we're really comfortable in our sin. Again, we think we can handle it, or it's not that bad of a sin. And so, why don't we just keep doing what we've been doing? Yeah, it separates me from God, but really not that much. I'm okay. I'm sure God's okay with that. Well, he's not. God's not okay with our sin. And so, David is saying, follow my instruction and confess. You are forgiven. Um... Sometimes our sins do start 
to make our bones waste away. And they do start to really, we feel the hand of God upon us, convicting us of our sin. When we do that, we have to confess and be forgiven in order to experience that joy and to restore a relationship. You guys remember if you're, well, we're all parents, well, not all parents, but maybe from the kid's point of view, you would remember this too. Remember the first time your child lied to you? Or got caught at it anyway? Do you remember their face when they realized that you knew that they had lied? Did it have an impact on the relationship? Until they apologized, confessed, maybe got a little bit of a whooping, maybe not. Um, but until they, they restored that relationship, their relationship to you was damaged because they had sinned. It's the same way with God. Our relationship is damaged by sin. And yet all we need to do is confess it. And our joy is restored. Uh, verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. These words are true on so many levels. Um, is there any argument? Those who are 100% against God, they're wicked. We can all agree to that. What about 50% against God? That's still pretty much against God, right? They're, they're wicked. They deserve to be sorrowful. What about 20% or 10%? Are they still wicked? Oh, Bill, I, those are great examples, but they don't apply to me because I'm fully on God's side. Well, what about those who believe they're fully on God's side but hold that unconfessed sin in their heart? Um, I would argue that those people are counted among the wicked. Now, they may be among the forgiven and saved people, but as long as they have unconfessed sin, their relationship with God is not 100%. You cannot be everything that God made you to be if you have unconfessed sin in your heart. Big sins, little sins, doesn't matter. To God, sin is sin. Do you trust the Lord to forgive your sin? If so, Scripture promises His steadfast love will surround us. Right there in verse 10. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We look back a couple of verses. Isn't this just a repeat of blessed is the one or blessed is the man? Does this not say that, well, the wicked are sorrowful, the forgiven are joyous? We are so blessed to be forgiven and to, be, to uh, celebrate being forgiven. And finally in 11, David says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Are we righteous? Are we upright in heart? Well, some of you are thinking, well, of course I'm not righteous or upright in heart. I'm a sinner. I'm thus, and since I'm a sinner, I must be corrupt in the eyes of the Lord. Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches um, that we do continue to sin. However, we are forgiven. In fact, 
It is not the case where we ask forgiveness now and we sin and we die and we go to hell because we're a sinner, because we haven't asked forgiveness for that sin yet. It is the case that God, when we accept the, the, the love of Christ into our heart, it is the case where all of our sins are forgiven forever. Um, we will continue to sin. We should continue to celebrate because in spite of our tendency to sin, we remain forgiven. We have no right at all to claim righteousness or an upright heart on our own merit. It is solely through the grace of God that we for receive forgiveness and thus are seen by him to be righteous and upright. Therefore we can, as David instructs us to do, be glad in the Lord and shout for joy because blessed are we who are forgiven. We've looked at the psalm in a lot of detail. And what are we left to conclude? That God is quick to forgive, if only we will ask him. And that the result of forgiveness is great joy and commitment and a right relationship with God. So where do we go from here? Are you lacking joy? I know a lot of days I feel like I am. Um, I suspect that's not a problem with God. That's a problem with me relating to God. Um, not celebrating that you're forgiven? Get down on your knees and pray to God and celebrate forgiveness. Um, don't waste your efforts resisting God's forgiveness. Embrace being blessed. Do it here. Do it now. Do it again when you get home. Your Creator waits for you to talk to Him. Um, take full advantage of His eager willingness to listen to you when you pray and show a jubilant face to the world as you rejoice when you're ready to be forgiven. Now, I don't know whether you have been forgiven or not. That's between you and God. If you're not sure that you're forgiven, talk to David, Kevin, or myself, and we can explain it to you. Um, meanwhile, if you are forgiven, live like it. Celebrate it. Show the world a joyful face. Not a perfect person, but one who is seen as a forgiven and beloved child. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you that you love us so much, that you are um, willing to listen to our confessions, and that you are willing to forgive us immediately and even in advance. Just help us to realize how wonderful it is to be forgiven. Help us to uh, show that, that joyful face to the world. Help us to spread your word in obedience to you. And just, uh, just uh, thank you for that we are forgiven, Lord. Amen.